In spite of all the attention it's received in recent years, Philadelphia's gun violence crisis rages on. With over 335 fatal shootings at the time of this recording, a new mayor, Sherelle Parker, faces a multifaceted problem with complex root causes. It's an issue that touches every Philadelphian. And there are so many people in the city working tirelessly to address it. One of those people is Lukman Abdullah. We're dealing with a generational curse, and it really impacts our whole community. Lukman is a community leader, a crisis interventionist, a founding member of the Human Rights Coalition, an organization that advocates for the rights of incarcerated people, a father, and so much more. I first became aware of Lukman when I read one of his guest commentaries in The Philadelphia Citizen. I was struck by the authenticity of his voice. As a teacher, I'd been listening to young people talk about gun violence for many years. I could tell that Lukman had been too. I could also tell that he shares my belief that our failure to take seriously the voices of children is a root cause of violence. When I first reached out, I had no idea that Lukman Abdullah had been living a life of epic proportions. I'm Maureen Boland, and you're listening to the Mighty Writers Podcast, featuring stories and interviews that will open your heart. In today's interview, we talk about Lukman's journey from growing up in North Philly to his time in prison, during which he spent years in solitary confinement, to his life after prison where he's become a well-known community leader, scholar, and activist. I hope you enjoy our conversation. This city can feel so fractured and so divided, and it feels especially true when it comes to gun violence. You know, you can be in one community and hardly ever come in contact with gun violence, and then two or three blocks away, gun violence is rampant. You have experienced gun violence personally. Yes. Uh, so, 38 years ago, I was shot four times. Uh, so barely survived. My younger brother was murdered. Three cousins and my nephew was murdered in the city of Philadelphia. I went away for allegedly taking the life of the guy who killed my little brother and got a news trial and was found not guilty. But 23 and a half years of my life, was spent incarcerated, five years in solitary confinement. However, when I was away, I met a guy who had been incarcerated 35 years. And he told me that this is not the end of the road. And so he, he got me to start reading books. I started reading a lot of political books, cultural, educational books, went back to school. And one day I was reading the Daily News and I saw about 20 young people who had lost their lives to gun violence in Philadelphia. And that newspaper article really changed my life in regards to my thinking and my desires. And I said that if I ever get out, this is the area where I would like to spend a lot of time trying to bring about change. My mother went through pain and suffering. My family members went through pain and suffering. My cousin, who runs the organization today, 
mothers in charge went through pain and suffering. I have friends who is dealing with pain and suffering, grief, trauma, and it really impacts our whole community, not just the family, but gun violence impacts the whole community. We're dealing with a generational curse. Because I was a ninth grade English teacher, the way I came to understand how widespread the grief is was because I would put on the board, write about something that changed you. And every time I did that, I wasn't trying to elicit trauma. I wasn't trying to elicit grief. They could have written about anything that they wanted. But time and time again, minimum 30% of the class would write about the effects of gun violence. When we look at people who go to war or people who go into the military and experience some form of warfare and they come home and they're diagnosed with PTSD, when we look at things that's happening in our communities, when we look at things that our families are experiencing, when we look at that trauma, we're looking at people who are also experiencing PTSD. And it affects the whole community. It, it affects how we interact with others. It affects how we interact with our family members. It can isolate us from our communities. It makes you not want to trust people. When I read your piece in The Philadelphia Citizen, I knew immediately that you were truly engaged with kids and listening to them. And that was called Listen to Teens on Gun Violence. And your voice was the first time that I felt absolutely convinced that you were authentically listening to kids. And the only reason I know that is because that's what I was doing in the classroom. And it matched what you said matched exactly what I was taking away from my work with kids. You know, I see that a lot of young people are afraid. There's a fear that they have. And so they rather have a gun with them or on them thinking that that's going to save them. And so as adults, yes, we have experienced a lot more than some of these young people, but we also living in a different time. And so just finding out the rap music, just listening to them to hear what rap music they listening to, what social media platforms they on, what's going on on those social media platforms, what's going on in their schools. I mean, how many parents really sit down and try to really have a conversation with their children? They say, oh, how your day going? The child say, oh, it's fine, but we don't go deeper into how your day was going. I have a 13-year-old and a 14-year-old that's still in public school in Philadelphia. My 14-year-old, I talked to her the other day. I felt that it was something on her mind that she didn't want to come out and tell me. So then my 13-year-old called me and said, Dad, do you know what happened to Ayana? And I was like, no. So she said, well, she had a bruise on her. And I said, a bruise on her? How she get a bruise on her? Where's the bruise from? I'm thinking it was something else. My 13-year-old said, because a boy is hitting on her. Our children sometimes won't come out and tell us, and sometimes we have to go around the block to try to get information out. So when my 13-year-old told me what happened, then that's when I had a conversation with my 14-year-old, and she shared with me, oh, the boy, he played too much this and that, and I had to tell her, you're not nobody's punching back. I'm also a parent of a 14-year-old at a Philadelphia public high school, and I have a 9-year-old as well. And I see this as a parent, but it was more obvious to me as a teacher. Sometimes it's—I don't know if you find this—sometimes it's easier to deal with other people's kids than your own. Kids can seem like they don't want to talk, and they can put up all kinds of signs that are pushing you, the adult, away— 
But the reality is, if you stick with that kid for just a little while, I rarely run into a kid that doesn't want to open up. But if I go with that first interaction, I would listen to very few kids. Like you said, sometimes it's easier to work with other people's children than with your own. And I find that to be true because sometimes I have to know when to just shut down with my own daughters and just wait for them to open up. Because sometimes you can push, 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 and an individual can become frustrated that you keep pushing. So sometimes it's you just have to know when to just chill or start the conversation up in another way. You know, it may not seem like it, but I joke a lot. You know, I joke to ease people's spirit or to get them to feel comfortable. And then I go into the various discussions of why we're here to meet. It's the same way with my daughters, the same way with other people. You know, sometimes we just have to know what to say, how to say it, when to say it, and whom to say it to. So you've been listening. And in all of that listening, you have arrived at some conclusions about what more we can be doing to deal with the problem of gun violence. And so what are some of those things from your conversations with kids and adults throughout the city? What do you see as some of the potential solutions? I find that a lot of young people are asking for just basic, simple stuff like jobs. They were asking for financial literacy classes in the schools. They were asking for entrepreneurship classes or how to start businesses. You know, they were speaking about being able to learn various skills from uh, the uh, apprenticeship programs and stuff, as well as adults just listening to them. Overall, their main concern was that as adults, we really don't sit down and listen to them because our young people are brilliant. They have great insight. A lot of them have skills that we don't even know they have. And they can provide us with information to a lot of the different issues in our communities, in our society. And it's just important that we really sit down and give them the opportunity to partner with us. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that it's a missed opportunity. I think most adults don't understand what skills kids have and what they have to offer. And that there is a resource right in front of us that we're ignoring all the time. And then I would only say that we give up way too quickly. The kids, as much as they can lead, they also need a lot of support to get there. And then you have to keep showing up to prove to them that you're going to keep showing up because a lot of kids are expecting us to let them down. And so I absolutely agree with you. I think it takes a very committed adult or a very committed organization to not give up on kids because they can push you away too. You're listening to the Mighty Writers Podcast. We'll be back after a quick break. Hi, I want to take a moment here to say a few words about Mighty Writers, the nonprofit that teaches kids to write. It also happens to be the nonprofit behind this podcast. Mighty Writers launched its program from a South Philadelphia storefront 13 years ago with a singular mission, to teach kids to think clearly and write with clarity so they can achieve success. Today, with multiple sites in Philadelphia and New Jersey, that same Mighty Mission still stands. At Mighty Writers, we believe that writing holds a multitude of powers. The most obvious is that you can express how you feel and what you want. 
clearly. Learning to write forces all of us, kids included, to think clearly. And when you're thinking clearly, you make smart decisions. That's important for all of us, but maybe especially for kids who are faced with all kinds of challenges and choices as they navigate adolescence and the teen years in these difficult times. At Mighty Writers, we've been able to reach kids across Philadelphia and well into New Jersey with the power of writing, and we're just getting started. If you'd like to know more about Mighty Writers and what we're up to, go to our website, mightywriters.org. Thank you. Let's get back to my conversation with violence prevention advocate Lukman Abdullah. The other part of your life that you've mentioned a couple times here, and it's pretty extraordinary, you served 23 years in prison? 23 and a half. And about five of those in solitary? Yes. And if I understand correctly, you spent much of that time in solitary confinement because as retaliation for political organizing you were involved with? Yes, ma'am. And in 2010, you went before the PA House Judiciary Committee about your experiences of torture, and you testified about having been tortured by many people in the prison system, including Charles Grainer. Yes. And Charles Grainer later served six and a half years of a 10-year sentence for leading the torture at Abu Ghraib yes. in Iraq. Yes, ma'am. And, um, you know, it takes my breath away. I've read the testimony. I highly recommend if anybody wants to understand what was happening to you in prison and to many others to read the testimony. It's pretty shocking. So how was it that you came to testify? What 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 happened leading up to the point where you were asked to testify before the Judiciary Committee? Well, I was uh, I'm a founding member of the Human Rights Coalition and the Human Rights Coalition have been doing advocacy work for years for those that's incarcerated, especially those who have been affected by solitary confinement. And the Human Rights Coalition was in communication with the former state representative, Ryan Waters. And so uh, because I was one of the ones who experienced the torture, along with uh, political prisoner Russell Maroon Schultz and a few other individuals, they asked me to be one of the ones to give a testimony along with Roger King, who was part of the Angola Three, and another gentleman who was spent time in Marion Federal Penitentiary. Did any changes come about because of that testimony or work that you've done? Within the prisons? Yeah. I think that a lot of changes did come within the prisons in regards to the length of time that they was holding people, how they were going about having hearings for disciplinary hearings for individuals, and how they were making decisions on the length of time the individuals stay in long-term lockdown. For you personally, what, what did that moment mean to you? That moment, meant it meant to me that I had the opportunity to present before the world of the realities of things that's happening in a lot of prisons. Not because you broke a law, but because you decided to make a change in your life and in your thinking, and you decided to stand up and be a voice for others, but also to empower others. Sometimes prison become the cell of life where individuals rebuild, redevelop themselves, refocus, and learn to be an asset into society. And so this asset in society now who've been home 18 years, experienced the trauma, 
experienced the abuse, physical, mental, psychological, but yet I came out here and I'm still doing the work of trying to save lives, no matter how they tried to break me and try to break so many other people in prison. Are you saying that when you were in prison and you were you were involved in various activities trying to empower the community and what you were experiencing is that the prison officials did not want to see an empowered community? Yes. And I'll give you an example. When we were at Super Maximum Prison, SCI Green, and you'd be out in the yard, individuals could be in the yard, 75 to 100 prisoners meeting together to sing rap music. You can have, I can have an educational class going on with 10 people, and I'm locked down for unauthorized group activity. And we read in a book called Visions for Black Men by Dr. Naeem Akbar, who's a black psychologist. And he talks about the transformation that men and boys have, what boys have to go through to become men to become responsible, become fathers, community members, building the community. And you can go to solitary confinement for just being in a group of 10 people going over their book. I perceive you, I don't know if this is correct or not, but I perceive you as a very spiritual person. Yes. And so I've sort of told myself the story that that probably had a lot to do with how you came out of prison really strong. I mean, it was a combination of things that helped me. I think one was the re-education of myself, going back to school, but also reading literature and information of empowerment. I also read a lot of information dealing with spirituality, religion, the Bible, the Quran, uh, all kinds of spiritual resources. I read information from the Jehovah Witness community. I read so much information from a lot of different spiritual bodies, African traditions. The other thing is I also read a lot about family, you know, family life, family lifestyles. Read a lot about culture, economics, socialization, social skills, education, all those different bodies of information to me was like spokes on a wheel. So I think that that also helped me get grounded and understand the value that I possess as an individual and that my life is meaningful and I have its worth. It has value and worth in this society. We always talk about legal rights. We always talk about civil rights. But we don't talk about the rights that we have as just being human beings. You know, as a human being, I have a right to uh, to be safe. Our young people have a right to be safe. We have a right to have some form of economical balance so that we can survive. We have a right to socialization, healthy socialization. We have a right to housing and stable housing, so forth and so on. So there are certain things that we have a right to just being human beings. Thinking about it from a teacher perspective, a school perspective, what we tell kids or what we express to kids through our actions is that, you know, their worth is tied up in their grades and their ability to follow rules and their ability to follow whatever program might be in place. And a lot of times the programs themselves are worth questioning. And it would be truly revolutionary for a curriculum like that to be available to all kids. You know, because some kids do get curriculum like that. Some schools do, you know, some version of that. 
But most of the kids in this city never hear a message like that, not from an institution, certainly from families. But I think it could be really, really revolutionary. And I, I think it's time. Like, if we're, not, if we're not now seeing that the kids need something really comprehensive and really transformative, nothing's going to um, convince us of that case. Because right now, you're right, life is cheap. If we see that we have kindergartners and first graders that's involved in aggressive behavior, that right there should be a sign to show us that we need to invest in some life skills, social skills, problem solving skills, or some human rights development within these young people. Because I don't think that human rights is talked about enough. When you say human rights, the first thing we think about, oh, you talking about what's going on in this country and that country. No, I'm talking about right here in Philadelphia, right here in Pennsylvania, right here in the United States. Of all the different kinds of service that you've provided or jobs that you've had or titles that you've had, where do you think you've made the most impact? I think my greatest impact has been working with other organizations, giving them various tools and strategies just being able to be a resource for the community. I think I've had an impact doing those things because that's what people call me for for the most. So I guess mm-hmm. they recognize the talents or the resource that I am more so than I do. My greatest passion, though, is to be able to save lives and be able to empower people so that they don't have to go through the struggles that the average person have to go through. Being able to help remove barriers that people may be confronted and faced with. You know, those are some of the things that I desire to do, and I think I'm somewhat impactful. Like I was just telling somebody the other day, I say a pledge to myself every morning when I wake up, and I've been saying this pledge for 25 years, especially when I was in solitary confinement, and it's the day I pledge to feed my mind knowledge, my body strength, and my spirit faith, the day I pledge to be a better me. And I say that pledge every day. I've been saying it for the last 25 years. And so when I go out and I leave out my house, I'm looking at what can I do not only to be a better person, but to help somebody else be a better person. How can I help somebody else make a pledge to themselves to make a change? Total pleasure to finally have this time to sit down. I'm just really glad to be connected to you. Somebody that's really, truly trying to make this place a much better one. Thank you. And it's a pleasure and thank you for all the work that y'all are doing as well. During this interview, Lukman mentions that it was an article from the Philadelphia Inquirer that led him to become committed to violence prevention. I read the same article, published in November of 2017, written by Helen Ubinas. It was entitled, Look at the Faces of Our Dead Children. That article changed my life, too. It didn't just inform me. It woke me up. I could no longer keep quiet about the profound suffering I was reading in the stories students shared in the classroom. Lukman and I could not be more different in terms of the paths we have walked. And yet, through listening to young people, we have arrived at some of the same conclusions. As Lukman puts it, 
Too many of our children aren't being taught about their value as human beings. They don't know about their right to safety, their right to emotional well-being, their right to health, their right to peace and hope. And even children who are taught about the value of their lives at home often face systems rooted in injustice that undermine those lessons. They see decay and violence in their neighborhoods, and then, too often, they arrive at schools that resemble prisons in the worst cases and regard children first as data points and only then as humans. Recently, I spoke with a 17-year-old named Nicole who was living in a shelter. Abused at home, she attended a school with extreme violence and chaos. What she described sounded exactly like a prison. School was completely inhumane. Home was completely inhumane. And although inhumanity was all she had ever known, an inner voice was telling her she deserved better. So she left home and school in search of more humane treatment. Lukman's call for a curriculum devoted to teaching children about their human rights would be revolutionary. Anyone who can't see that it's past time for a revolution is simply not fully awake. My hope is that by sharing Lukman's story, even more of us will open our eyes. The Mighty Writers Podcast is brought to you by Mighty Writers, a nonprofit based in Philadelphia that teaches kids how to write. You can learn more about our work at mightywriters.org. The executive producer of the Mighty Writers Podcast is Tim Whitaker. This episode was produced in partnership with Row Home Productions. Row Home's executive producers are John Myers and Alex Lewis. Our lead producer is Danya Abdel Hamid. Final mixing and mastering is by Justin Berger. Original theme music is by Jim Morgan. This episode also features music from Blue Dot Sessions. To keep up with the Mighty Writers podcast, follow at Mighty Writers on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can tweet me, Maureen Boland, at MCG Boland. And don't forget to subscribe to the Mighty Writers podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening and catch you next time. Row Home Productions. Mm -hmm.